Sorry, I'm just getting a WebEx announcement in my ear. All right, so because the uh, approaching reliability Michelle, in this I one, apologize. I need to interrupt you. We need to start over at your tippy top because I think that there was a hiccup in the broadcast start. So ah. if we could roll back, we'll, we'll start just at, at your first introduction of um, the manufacturing game and uh, the purpose of not just having tools, but using them. Great. All right, sorry about that uh, technology. It's a wonderful thing, huh? All no right, apologies. so during, no problem. During uh, my 25 years of, of working in maintenance and reliability, it's been my experience that improving reliability involves more than just having the tools and having the techniques. You actually have to use them and use them on a regular basis and get them down to the frontline workers, the ones that are closest to the equipment, if you want to have success. This is where I've seen the majority of reliability efforts fail. So for those of you that, that aren't familiar with, with what I do at TMG Frontline Solutions, we actually use a board game as a novel, fun way to share the concept of defect elimination with everyone at a site, from the frontline workers up through the plant managers, senior leadership, regional leadership, global leadership, getting everybody kind of on the same page and speaking the same language. Um, what I want to do today is talk about using a defect elimination process as a way to win over the hearts and minds of those closest to the equipment, getting them enthusiastically on board, giving you a greater chance of, of achieving success, but also for sustaining it so that it lives beyond just the introduction to the program. All right, so I wanna start by just defining what I mean by a defect. There are lots of different definitions floating out there. Uh, I don't think any one particular definition is better than the others, but the one that I've used for the past 25 years is this. A defect is anything that erodes value, reduces production, compromises health, safety, or environmental performance, or creates waste. And at TMG Frontline Solutions and in the manufacturing game, we re represent these as bugs that are invading our equipment as well as our processes and practices. And while it's typically up to the folks in maintenance to get defects out, um, they aren't the only ones that get to put them in. Everybody within an organization has the opportunity to put defects into the equipment and into the system. And so we divide them into five broad categories, raw materials, operational discipline, workmanship, quality materials, and design. So let me talk about each one of them. The first being raw materials. So this includes anything within your organization's raw materials that can have a negative impact on equipment reliability. So some examples would include, say, sand and water that comes in with a crude from an, an oil and gas production platform. Um, it would include wood chips that are in the rubber for a tire manufacturer. Uh, chemical plants might have poisons to catalysts. And at a mining operation, you might have rocks that are, are the wrong size, you know, too big and, and not able to be processed by the equipment. This category also includes defects that are in the less obvious raw materials that most facilities use. You might have a problem with your process air. Maybe there's too much moisture in your process air, or you have material, uh, mineral scale in your, in your uh, process water, or printing errors on packaging that you get from an outside source. So all of these we would include in defects from raw materials. The next category we call operational discipline, and so these are defects that enter the equipment because of how we run it. So we include normal wear and tear in this category, but we also include any excessive wear and tear. If we're cavitating a pump, that would, the damage from that would be included in this category. Um, either running equipment too fast or too slow based on how it's designed, 
uh, starting it up improperly, shutting it down improperly would all be included in this category as well. Now, there are many reasons for defects in this category. One is just lack of operating skills. So maybe we're, we're not hiring the right people with the right skill levels. Maybe we're not training them properly, giving them the, the knowledge they need to run the equipment in the right way. It might be that we have inadequate or incorrect or missing procedures. Um, the other one that, that we see a lot is we just don't make it easy to do the right thing. And so if we want people to run things a certain way, but they have to jump through 15 hoops to do it, uh, they might do it on occasion, but they're unlikely to do it all the time. And so we would include those defects again in this category. Um, and I'll talk more about that in the design category as well. Now we do have defects that come in from maintenance workmanship. So mechanics do get to put defects into the equipment as well. And it's based on how they maintain and repair the equipment. So examples here might include uh, not properly aligning pumps, maybe using the wrong tool, using a ratchet wrench when a torque wrench is required, um, improperly tightening belts, maybe using a, a blow torch to heat a bearing. Um, things like that can put additional defects into the equipment. Um, same as we have with operational discipline, they come in for a variety of reasons. It might be lack of skills, lack of training, problems with the procedures, um, or it could be that the design is, is done in such a way that, that proper maintenance is very difficult. Um, the most common defect that we see in this category is actually an interesting one. It comes from the system that the mechanics are operating in. So if you think about when a piece of equipment goes down, what is typically the first question that gets asked of a mechanic that's been tasked with fixing it? It's usually how quickly can you have that equipment back online? Not how much time do you need? What do you need to do a proper repair? It's, hey, how fast can it be done? Can you get it done in the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Um, and so what we're doing as, a, as an organization, as a system, is maybe inadvertently giving the message to the mechanics that a speedy repair is more important than a quality repair. And so that feeling of being rushed, that feeling of needing to cut corners in order to hurry and get it done, is where a lot of the defects from maintenance workmanship come in. Because what matters with craft, craftsmanship is the craftsmanship that's used on a regular basis. Not what the mechanics know how to do, but what they actually do most of the time. The next category of defects we have are defects from maintenance materials. And so here we have uh, any kind of problems with our spare parts. So there might be problems from the initial quality, how they're transported, how they're stored, their availability or lack thereof, and their fitness for purpose, all would be in this category. So some examples include uh, something I saw on a, on a LinkedIn post um, uh, recently asking about what are some of the defect elimination challenges you have. Somebody said, buying from the cheapest vendor. And so you're not necessarily getting the best part, but you're getting the best deal. That certainly can bring in a lot of defects with it. Um, you might have belts that aren't stored properly. They're not protected from the moisture. So when you're ready to use them, they have dry rot issues. Uh, if you have a shaft that gets bent when it's being transported because it's not transported properly, that would be a defect in this category. Uh, using a bearing with a C3 clearance when the requirement is a C1 clearance, those would be defects in, in this category as well. The final category we have are defects from design. And so we include in this the design and installation of the equipment and also the processes and practices around that equipment as well. And our definition here says, to whatever extent the current design doesn't meet the current business needs, then you have defects from design. So this means by definition that something that was designed to specs 20 years ago, 
that our process has changed over the course of 20 years, but the design has not, means that that design has defects in it. So designed perfectly 20 years ago doesn't mean that it's, it's forever defect free. Uh, if our operation changes, our designs need to change as well. We also include in this category any defects related to operability and maintainability of the equipment. So sometimes it works perfectly, but it's just incredibly difficult to uh, access, the, the, to make adjustments or take readings or to lubricate the equipment. And so in that case, those are defects as well, because if you can't operate it right, you can't maintain it right, you're going to get additional problems. Um, some examples here include a pump that's too large for the required flow rate, uh, a refinery that was designed to run sweet crude, but now because they got a special deal, they're running sour crude, um, but they haven't changed any of the equipment, uh, a valve that needs to be reached on a regular basis in order to operate that's 15 feet up in the air and, and has no easy access, or maybe a sight glass that's obscured by another piece of equipment. So again, making it difficult to operate or difficult to maintain. I also want to make a distinction here about um, when I'm talking about defect elimination versus just planned maintenance, which is defect removal. It's an efficient defect removal, but it is still defect removal, not necessarily el elimination. The easiest way for me to do this is to talk through an example. So this is a refinery that I worked with several years ago. It was having trouble maintaining their product specs because they had a control valve with a positioner that malfunctioned frequently. The equipment history was that the positioner would be replaced, it would work for about three months, and then it would start to have chronic problems. They would then replace it, it would work for about three months, and then it would start to malfunction. So at one point, there was uh, one of the planners got really frustrated by the high maintenance costs, by the call-outs, by the product quality problems, and they said there's got to be a, a more efficient way of doing this work. Rather than just run to failure, maybe we should plan this job. And so. They figured out what the interval was, so again, about 90 days. They pre-ordered the part that they would need to do the replacement. When the, repart, when the part came in, they would, would kit it up and have it ready to go for the job. And then they would look for a window of opportunity to, to schedule the equipment down so that they could do the replacement and do it in a way that was the least disruptive to the operations folks. And then they would schedule the work and, and actually get it done. And so this was a huge improvement from their run to failure approach. They were able to reduce their maintenance costs. They also were able to reduce the number of maintenance and operations call outs associated with this equipment. And most importantly, they, they were able to reduce the product quality problems that they were having. So they did a great job of making this work more efficient, but they still were doing the work. They had not eliminated this defect. They were just managing it in a better way. So there was another team, a small cross-functional team that came out of one of our workshops and they had this sort of defect elimination mindset going on. And they decided that they wanted to go take a look at this and see if they couldn't actually solve the problem and make this work go away rather than just getting more efficient at doing it. And they knew that they needed to look for the source of the defect. What was causing this piece of equipment to fail every three months or so? So the first thing that they, that they did was a little bit of research. They looked into the equipment, looked at some of the specs, talked to the vendor. And then the next thing that they did was go out into the field to take a look at the valve in operation. And what one of the team members immediately noticed is that this, this valve was sitting on a hot oil line. And they knew from the research that they had done that there was a, a temperature limit, an upper end temperature limit for this particular device. And so they were curious, you know, was maybe, maybe the heat was part of the problem. So they took temperature readings 
And uh, they found that the, the reading on the valve was 175 degrees Fahrenheit. That was below the absolute max, according to the, uh, the specs, which was 185 degrees. However, it was well above the continuous operating upper limit of 140. And so at this point, they realized the mystery was solved. This made perfect sense. They would put in a brand new valve. It would be exposed to this excessive heat, not too much that it couldn't run at all, but enough that over time it would degrade the valve and eventually they would have to replace it. They'd replace it, it would work fine, but over time the excess heat would cause a problem and they kept repeating this cycle. So they said, okay, rather than just fixing the symptom, let's go after the source of the defect. Let's do something about the heat. So you can see in this second picture here, they had some insulation installed on those hot oil lines that were uh, around the valve and they were able to shield it from some of the heat. They took a new temperature reading. This time they were at 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So they were well below the 145 on the continuous operating limit. And so they thought, okay, let's, let's see what happens. So they, they ran and we checked back with them every now and then to see how it was going. The last time we checked with them, it had been over three years and they had not had to replace the valve even once. So they went from doing work every three months to replace the valve to going over three years without having to replace it. And so uh, at this point, before getting into the details of, of my version of the defect elimination process, I want to learn a little bit more from all of you about the level of involvement that you currently get from your frontline workforce in your reliability efforts. So I think the next slide ought to be the poll question. So let me turn things back over to Leah. Perfect, thank you. All right, audience, you are probably well-versed in this, but just in case, I'm going to launch a poll that you should all have access to. If for some reason you cannot click the radio buttons, then you may need to reduce your screen size back down if you've maximized your viewing window. And your question today, as Michelle has introduced, how involved are your frontline workers in reliability improvements? Your answers, and you may only select one, are very, they are frequently involved on a regular basis, somewhat, they are occasionally involved, not much, they are not often involved or never. They are focused on corrective work and scheduled PMs. And our goal is to get about three quarters of our audience uh, participating in the poll so that, we, so that Michelle has that information as she goes forward with this presentation today. And we're almost there. We have about 60%. So give it your best shot. I know that having just one option is limiting, but take your best choice between very, somewhat, not much, or never involved on the frontline workers in reliability improvement. All right, I'm going to close the poll down now. I'm going to share the results. Michelle, we have 24% of the audience saying that very, they are frequently involved on a regular basis. We have 53% saying somewhat, the frontline workers are occasionally involved. We have 14% saying not much, frontline is not often involved, and 9% saying never. They are focused on corrective work and scheduled PMs. How does this align with what you typically see? Very encouraging, actually. Um, what we've seen in the past is a lot more skewed to not much or never, so it's nice to see that there are at least, what, 25% that are 24% mm -hmm. that are uh, frequently involved and, and a healthy chunk that are most people are, are somewhat involved. So 
um, that's that's nice to see. It's nice to see that that's changing in that direction. Yep. We do have an awesome audience here in these webinar series, so kudos to you, audience. Um, I want to sneak in there that since we had some glitches at the beginning of the program, I want to encourage people to use the questions tab to enter your questions as we go. Uh, we will be holding most of the responses until the end, but as things occur to you, go ahead and type those in, and then don't close out until you've answered the survey at the end. All right? So Michelle, are there more comments you want to make on the poll or should we go back to the regular presentation? I think we can go back to the presentation now. All right, you should have control. All right, let's see. All right, so um, again, glad to see that that uh, the majority of you at least have some participation from the frontline workforce, because I think that's incredibly important. And uh, I think this, is the, this slide shows kind of a good way to think about defect elimination, that if you have this sort of pyramid where you have um, reliability incidents, right? So production upsets and things like that, where you have the big incident, the big horrible one at the top. For every one, there's you know maybe ten little ones. You have work orders underneath that, and down at the bottom of, of the pyramid, you have tens of thousands of defects. Just the small annoyances, the uh, failure of redundant equipment, the short stoppages uh, that don't last very long, the nuisance alarms. These are all the things that show at the bottom of the pyramid. And if you look at traditional approaches to reliability improvement, there's almost always a focus kind of on the top of the pyramid. And that makes perfect sense when you're talking about constrained resources. If you're talking about your engineering time or your capital budgets, of course you wanna go after the big issues, right? The things that shut you down, that cause the big disruptions to your, your process. You want the biggest bang for the buck. But the problem with this is it ignores the thousands of defects that are at the bottom of the pyramid and more importantly, ignores the hundreds of people or maybe thousands of people that have to deal with those little aggravations day in and day out. So what we recommend from a defect elimination perspective is not that it replaces your top-down approach. You still need those big ways of dealing with big problems. What we recommend is that you add to it with a defect elimination approach that kind of goes bottom up. And so it takes on all of those small problems, gets them out of the way, gives you some space to deal with the big problems, but maybe most importantly is it gives you an opportunity to involve a much higher percentage of your workforce in dealing with some of these issues and improving reliability. So here's a, a framework that I'm going to share with you guys on our defect elimination process, and, and don't worry, it is incredibly simple. It is an eight-step process. So the first step is to find a defect. Now I mentioned defect elimination is about making work go away getting at the source of the defect, but a great way to start is to find a defect that's already gotten into the equipment and start from there. And then during this process, you're going to not only take that defect out, but you're going to make sure you do it in a way that it doesn't return. Now, one of the things I recommend is it's much better to let people choose what defects they want to work on rather than assigning them. Let them pick something that gives them a headache on a daily basis some issue that they have a personal passion about, because that's where they're going to bring their A game, not something that you voluntold them to do. Um, the second step in the process, once they've picked a defect, is to verify that it fits within the process boundaries that are established by management. Now, counterintuitively, at least for me, boundaries provide a tremendous amount of freedom to explore within those boundaries. So rather than confining people, it actually gives people freedom. I'm going to talk a good bit more about boundaries in a few minutes. So I'll leave it there for now. 
The next step in the process is to help the project initiator put together the right team of people. And again, you want to recruit rather than assign. You want people to be there because they want to be there. Typically, uh, defect elimination teams have three to six people. Uh, you want a cross-functional nature. So, you know, having just one or two doesn't give you that cross-functional perspective. So three is a good minimum number. And you really don't want more than, say, six or eight people because then you start getting into committee where everybody gets to say no and nobody says yes. And, and you're not getting a whole lot of work done. So these are sort of fast acting teams, not, not large committees. It's important that the team includes people who can take the defect out so they can fix whatever the current problem is. But it's also very important to include the people who can stop new defects from coming into the system. Let me give you an example we had at a medical research facility. They had a huge problem with damage to the doors in the facility. The, the door jams were being damaged and the hinges were being damaged and they were spending tens of thousands of dollars a year just fixing doors. So they had a small group decide that they were going to get together and tackle this problem and they said okay you know we need somebody who can fix it, we need the carpenters, we need some of the people that work in the building who can identify where the problems are and then they had a, a stroke of genius. They said you know the other thing we need to do is include somebody from the janitorial staff not a team member you would normally think about, but they said they, they deal with these doors all the time and I think they're part of the problem because they're taking those wedges that are meant to fit underneath the door and they're sticking them in the side of the door instead. And that's putting extra pressure on the hinges and that's part of what's causing the damage. So they recruited somebody from the janitorial staff to get on the team and, and the first thing was that person learned, oh, I had no idea that putting the wedges in the side of the door caused problems. So I'll make sure that, that my group knows not to do that anymore. But they also said, but here's another problem. The reason we started doing it is that some of the doors are too far off the ground. The gap between the bottom of the door and the floor is too big for the wedges to work. That's why we started putting them in the, in the side of the door. So once they realized that there was a design issue, they were able to work together, together to solve that. So they got some of those um, hook, eye, hook and eye uh, door latches and they figured out all the doors that were too far off the ground and they were able to use those as a way for keeping the doors open so that they didn't have to use the, the, uh, the wedges improperly. So again, you want people on the team who can fix the problem. It's also very important to have people on the team who can prevent the problem from coming back. Make sure you include them. All right, once you have the team put together, then it's up to the team to look at, again, how do they fix this problem in a way that it's not gonna come back? How do they prevent it from, from happening again? And in this case, it's important to think of those sources of defects. Is the problem coming from raw materials, how we operate the equipment, how we maintain it, the parts we use, or the design of the equipment or the system? And this is where the team may need a little bit of extra training. If they're not familiar with this concept of defect sources, this is where the organizer of the defect elimination effort may have to step in and, and help out a little bit. And then the team executes the project. They go out and eliminate the defect, doing it in a way that prevents recurrence. It's really important that the team themselves do the implementation, not that they hand it off to somebody else or just provide recommendations. Again, I'll talk more about that in a minute when I start talking about some of the, the pitfalls. Once the team is done, there are a couple of steps that need to happen in order to kind of boost and sustain the effort. And this is, again, where the teams probably need some help. They're gonna need somebody to step in and help them with this. So the first step here is to document 
the the improvement and do it in a way that's an easy to share format. So nothing nothing too complicated or too technical. Uh, pictures worth a thousand words. So get these successes out there so that people can can learn from them and can see that there is good improvement work going on. The next thing that you do after the team is done is to track the savings. You know at some point somebody's going to ask for the numbers. They're going to ask for the justification for continuing this effort. And so it's important that you have that information available. That said, remember that these defects are going to be very, very small. And so you want to make sure that the process for tracking the savings is appropriately sized as well. You don't want to spend more time tracking the savings than they're actually spending eliminating the defects. Um, another one of my recommendations is if you're going to make a mistake on the savings, always make a mistake by understating rather than overstating. You want people arguing that you're not taking enough into account versus the other way around. Um, another way to help with this is early on in one of some of your defect elimination projects, if you can get somebody from accounting or finance to be a team member, they are a fantastic resource for helping on the back end with all of the teams kind of coming up with some numbers to, to put to the safe. The last step in the process is to share the story. So while everyone will ask for the numbers, what they actually remember are the stories. So make sure that you're going beyond just the dry facts and figures, make it something interesting, right? Think about what was funny or epic about the process. Uh, who were some of the personalities involved? A lot of times that, that adds a little bit of interest to the story. And use names, use people's names to give them credit, but also to make the stories more interesting and believable. And um, you know, another one is, is think about how long things have been accepted as standard operating procedure. The uh, situation with the valve that I mentioned before, they had been replacing that valve every three months for seven years. And nobody had ever thought to figure out what's causing this problem. Once they fixed it, it had been over three years and they hadn't had to touch it. So this is something that had been going on for a really long time. And this small group of people with extra curiosity finally made all of that extra work go away. So as promised, my eight step process here is incredibly simple, but just because it's simple doesn't mean it's going to be easy to do. And for anyone who's ever tried implementing any type of reliability improvement, you know this is true. Just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. With defect elimination, you're gonna to have to get the majority of the organization, especially those closest to the equipment, to be enthusiastically on board. You've got to get beyond malicious compliance. They have to want to do this. They have to be self-motivated to find defects, put together teams and eliminate them. Even though they'll need some help along the way, it shouldn't be something that has to be sort of driven hard from the top down. So before I talk about some of the challenges that, that we face with implementing defect elimination, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the challenges that you guys have already faced in other, uh, in other reliability improvements that you've tried to implement. So Leah, we'll go ahead and, and go to the second poll question here. Sounds good. And audience, great job entering your questions, keep it up. All right, you should now see the second poll in front of you. Excellent, I can see people already giving it a shot. What is your primary challenge with implementing reliability improvements? Just one, is it management support? And this could be funding or it could be other types of management support. Lack of technical knowledge or skills. Too busy with reactive work. Availability of the equipment or something else or you're not sure. Any of those options are fine. 
give it your best answer. We already have about 50% of the audience voting, so let's get another 20 to 25% of the answers in here because uh, this will help direct the second half of the presentation because obviously this is where the rubber hits the road. And uh, I think we're getting to the, the key part of it where we talk about motivation and changing the mindset. All right, is it management support, funding, or other? Um, and I can see comments already that there should be an all of the above. Yes, I can see that. All right, I'm going to close it down now and share the results. All right, Michelle, we have 31% saying management support, funding, or other. We have 21% saying lack of technical knowledge or skills. 28% saying too busy with reactive work. 13% saying availability of equipment. And 8% saying other or not sure. And thank you, audience, again for chiming in. I know that a forced stack is not the easiest answer to give. Michelle, what are your comments on those results? Yeah, so fairly evenly split. Um, <laughs> again, I think the the questions about maybe all of the above <laughs> would have been been a good uh, good addition <laughs> there. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, most of these as we go forward, and and kind of ways that. Uh, using a defect elimination process can help, I wouldn't say solve these problems, but work around them. This may be a better mm -hmm. way to, to explain it. And something you said to me, Michelle, that was enlightening about management support is that, you know, a variety of people have a variety of management responsibilities and there can always be issues above you. Yeah, it's really interesting that, um, you know, sometimes we get the comment of, uh, you know, that the problem is management won't let us. And so I hear that from frontline workers and what they mean are their supervisors. And then I hear that from supervisors and what they mean is management. Mm -hmm. And I hear it from management and what they mean is senior management. And I've heard plant managers tell me that. And they say, oh, if corporate would just get out of my way or just support what I'm trying to do. And so there's always that sense of I'm not getting what I need from, from above. And I think that's, that's very common at all levels within an organization. All right, over to you, Michelle. All right. All right, so what I want to talk about now are some of the common pitfalls. So as you're going forward with trying to implement defect elimination, um, I'll share with you some of the failures uh, that I've seen and I've been personally involved in in the hopes that you can avoid those. You can learn from my mistakes and not have to make them yourself. So the absolute number one biggest pitfall that we see is that the projects that the team select are too big. They are outside of their sphere of control, and so then they get frustrated. They can't get them done, and they say, okay, never mind. And um, I think that part of the problem here is that we're conditioned to believe that small equates to unimportant and insignificant, and that's not true. These small problems are every bit as important as the big, hairy ones. If you have this kind of mentality of go big or go home, that is absolutely lethal to a defect elimination process. Uh, my my good friend and, and colleague, George Mahoney with, with Merck Pharmaceuticals has a great way of saying it. He says, pick the dog you can walk, not the one that's gonna walk you. <laughs> so in this case, smaller is definitely better when it comes to defect elimination. Now let me talk about the power of small here. In every organization, there are big problems that need to be addressed. There's no doubt about it. And we see them a lot in a Pareto chart, right? You've got the big hairy problems on the left, Problem one, problem two, problem three, the bars get smaller and smaller and smaller. 
but there's always a bar on the far right-hand side that's usually close to as big as the biggest bar on the left. And the label on that one is other or miscellaneous. So these are all the problems that by themselves don't rate. But when you add them all together, they have a significant impact. Now, the traditional approach to improvement is you take your heavy hitter groups, your reliability groups, your engineers, your Six Sigma folks, whatever approach it is that you use, and you put them on the big problems. And that makes perfect sense. There are a limited number of those folks. They ought to be going after the really big issue. Um, but the problem is that ignores the miscellaneous column. And so what I recommend from a defect elimination perspective is not that defect elimination replaces the traditional approach. It's that it augments it, it supplements it. And rather than competing with the other efforts and going after the big hairy problems, the defect elimination effort ought to be focused on those small annoying problems that there are tens of thousands of. And so when you start looking at the benefits of these small projects, you can think of them as each one is an individual brick in a wall. Each one by itself doesn't make that big of a difference, but when you add them all together, the, the improvement is significant, so that's important. But I think more important than that is that it gives you the ability to involve a much higher percentage of your workforce in your reliability effort. And it gives you more opportunities for, rep for repetition, because ultimately, if you want reliability to be sustainable, you have to create new habits, new reliability habits, new defect elimination habits. And the way we create habits is through repetition. So if you're working on a project that's gonna take two years, you only get so many of those reputations. But if you're working on something that you can knock out in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, you can do a lot of those during the course of a year. And you get a chance to kind of build your defect elimination muscles up. All right, the second pitfall that we see uh, quite frequently is that this gets turned into basically a suggestion box type program where you tell everybody, go find defects and bring them to us and drop them in the box and we'll create a list and then we'll review them and we'll prioritize them and we'll rank them. And, and at some point, somebody's going to go work on them to make the defects go away. In fact, in, in DuPont, which is where the manufacturing game originated, they uh, got really excited about this defect elimination idea and they created a three-part hanging tag. It was a red tag and you could tie it onto a piece of equipment and then you would write some information on the second part of the tag, tear it off, go put that in a box and then somebody was gonna, gonna figure out what to do about it down the road. Well, what they found is you went out in the unit and there was this flutter of red flags on every piece of equipment, but nobody ever got around to fixing it. And so not only was it not motivating, it was just incredibly demotivating to see all of those defects out there that now were so glaringly obvious. And it was obvious that nobody was doing anything to make them go away. So it's really important that, that this be about action, about getting rid of defects, not just identifying them and handing them on to somebody else. The reason that this pitfall comes about is because it's always easy to find people that think that things should change. Much more difficult to find people who are willing to do the changing themselves. And so it's really easy to, to, for me to come up with a list of things that I think Leah ought to do differently, um, but it's very different for me to come up with a list of things that I'm willing to put the time and effort into doing differently. Um, so you don't wanna be adding things to, to other people's plates. The next pitfall that we run into is having either too much structure or too little structure. The key is coming up with the balance here. 
If you have too little structure, then the effort's just never going to get off the ground. People aren't going to understand what you want them to do. And it's going to be too much effort on their part because, again, this isn't you're not reassigning them to defect elimination as a job. You're asking them to do defect elimination in addition to their day job. And so if there's no structure at all, it takes too much effort for them to participate. And so they're just not going to bother. The flip side is if you have too much structure, the system collapses under its own weight. Remembering that we're working on small projects, you want to make sure that the administrative effort isn't significantly bigger and more difficult than the, than the projects themselves. And so one of the things I mentioned, I'd come back to boundaries. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, I mentioned that something at least that to me was very counterintuitive is that having good boundaries actually provides more freedom than having no boundaries at all. And they did an interesting experiment with kids and a park, and it's actually a landscaping group that did this. They took a, a, a bunch of kids from a schoolroom, so the kids and the teacher, out to a park, and the park had a dangerous road on one side and a railroad track on the other. And they told the kids, hey, explore the park. Go anywhere you want in the park. Just remember, the street's kind of dangerous because it's busy and you know, the railroad track is dangerous too. So just make sure you don't go in those areas. And so then they stood back and they watched. And what they found is that the kids all congregated around the teacher, around the authority figure, because they were uncertain of what was okay and what wasn't okay. And so they left a lot of the park empty because they just weren't comfortable kind of getting out and exploring. So next they took a group to another park. This one again had a busy road and a railroad track, but it had a fence around it. And so when they got inside of the park, they told the kids, go anywhere you want, as long as you stay in the fence, you're good. And the kids immediately took, the, took off, left the poor teacher standing by herself, and they explored every, every inch of the park. And so again, I think the same thing is true when you're talking about defect elimination. If you have some good boundaries and you're letting people know, here's what's okay and what's not okay, and as long as you stay in the fence, you're good, and I'm not going to bug you about it. And so that makes it really important when you get to the step in the process about making sure that the defect elimination project fits the boundaries, that you do only that. So you're not judging the project, you're not ranking it, you're not prioritizing it, you're not cost justifying it. All you're doing is saying, does it violate any of our boundaries? And if the answer is no, you have to green light the project. Even if you think it's stupid, you have to green light the project and let the team do it. That's really important because it's very important that the team own the process and not have it be imposed on them from the top down other than setting up the structure. So let me share with you kind of the boundaries that, that we typically use. And so we have this sort of broad framework, so five different areas for boundaries. Area of focus has to be actions, budget, timing, and limiting rules. Let me talk about each one. Area of focus can be just something very, very broad, like it ought to be improving reliability. So it needs to go beyond just doing a fix. We'll get teams that say, oh, you know, there's that broken valve, let's go fix that, that's our project. No, that, that would violate this boundary because it has to actually be an improvement, not just a fix. But depending on what's going on in your organization, you can get a lot more specific here. So we have one group that had a lot of product quality problems. And they said, we really want defect elimination to focus on only product quality improvement. Okay, fair enough. We had another group that said, you know, we, we have a really good program for dealing with safety issues that's run by the union. If we start doing a bunch of defect elimination projects that are safety focused, that's going to step on the toes of, of that other program, and we certainly don't want that. So one of their boundaries was that the project's could not be safety only. So a lot of times a defect elimination project has a safety component to it, 
but it couldn't be the primary focus. It had to be some other type of reliability improvement. So again, this can be tailored for whatever's right for your organization at any particular time. And again, these boundaries can change as your circumstances change. If you solve your product quality problems, then maybe you change the boundary and say, now we're going to work on something else. Second boundary is actions, not recommendations. So again, we don't want that suggestion box. Very important that the team owns the process. They can always recruit more people onto the team if they don't have the skills that they need, but they can't just hand off the process to somebody else. All right, and then we have budget. Um, this is budget for outside expenditure, so it doesn't include an allocation of labor costs or overhead. This is strictly money that's gonna go out the door. And uh, you know, we typically have a no capital money, $5,000 max limit, but this can be any number you want it to be. We actually were working with a refinery several years back that was going through a very difficult financial kind of restructuring. They had a new unit coming online, but in the meanwhile, they were having to go out and get bridge loans just to keep the gates open. And so the management said, listen, we're gonna set this boundary at zero outside dollars, none. And my first thought was, yikes, that might be a little too tight. I'm not sure if that's gonna work. But what they did a really good job of was explaining to the teams that, look, here's our situation. We're trying to keep the doors open. We gotta do this for the next eight months until the new unit comes online. Once the new unit comes online, then we can start spending money again. And so once the teams understood the reason for the, the severe limit and that it was just temporary, they actually got incredibly creative and they found a lot of ways to eliminate defects that didn't require any outside expenditure. So it can be done. The next boundary we have is timing. Um, again, these projects, you want them to be small, so you want the time to be really tight. I would say the absolute max outside limit would be 90 days. You don't want projects that are going to take longer than that to substantially complete. Now, there may be some component that you have to check on it in six months or a year or something like that. That's fine. But you want the project mostly done in 60 days. A lot of the folks we work with make it even tighter than that. We, or sorry, 90 days. A lot of them do it tighter at 60 days or 30 days. We also have organizations that say, you know, let's make it relevant to how we work. So if um, an, an offshore group that we worked with, offshore oil and gas platform said, they did it in terms of, of hitches. So you have to have it done in two hitches um, versus just the number of days. So you had a chance to get out there and work on it. Uh, again, we, we want to create that defect elimination habit. So having repetition is important. And that's why having those short time durations makes it, makes it a lot easier to do. The last category are limiting rules. So there's the obvious stuff in here. You have regulations that you're not allowed to violate. We always make sure the teams understand that this is not an excuse to break any of, of the rules that are set by government agencies or the rules that are set by the organization. So it might be um, you know, how the management of change is done within your organization. You know, just, just because this is a defect elimination project doesn't mean you get to skip that. Um, we want to make sure it's not a barrier to getting it done. We want to help teams do management of change, but they can't just skip it. You, we also might have customer requirements. And so we can't use defect elimination to violate any of the terms of our, our customer agreements and so on. So these boundaries can be as loose or as tight as management is comfortable with. But once they set them, they need to adhere to them. It can't be that they're going to be wishy-washy about what projects they, they approve and don't approve. You're building that fence and then giving the people participating on the teams the freedom to operate inside of that fence, even if what you think they're doing is stupid. <laughs> and, and a lot of times, uh, yeah, I certainly have had this happen with me, something I thought, wow, that's the dumbest project I've ever heard. 
and then they go do it. And it's like, oh my gosh, that was incredible. I'm amazed at the results. So uh, sometimes people can, can surprise you. All right, so the next pitfall that we see is trying to go it alone. Uh, implementing a defect elimination process can be a really uh, lonely journey if you're flying solo. And so it's important to build up a team of allies that can help you get kind of through the tough periods and, and over the hump, and also people that bring different skills to, to the process. In the book, Don't Just Fix It, Improve It, that, that Leah mentioned in my introduction, we talk about creating what we call a shadow network. So that's an informal group of people that are made up of, of leaders who are intrigued by the concept of defect elimination. And by leader, I mean real leaders. So not people with specific job titles. Anybody can be a leader. It's somebody that, that's going to take the initiative and bring other people along with them. And so it's important to, to kind of get those folks together so that you know when you're having a bad day and it's not going the right way, you have somebody that can kind of uh, boost you back up and, and help you move on with it. The next pitfall that we see is an over-focus on the numbers. Um, again, everybody wants to know the numbers, or, you know, what, what's the payout, what's the financial payback, um, but the defect elimination process shouldn't be overly concerned about that, about the size of the projects or the size of the financial payback. It really is about creating a better day at work, and it involves more than just having a few successful projects. It really involves changing the culture from one that tolerates defects, waits for things to fail, to one that's actively looking for ways to make defects and, and the associated work go away. One of the definitions of organizational culture that I really like that resonates with me is that organizational culture is made up of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so if you think about it, in most organizations, there are a ton of reactive hero stories out there, right? When something goes terribly wrong and somebody's comes in and saves the day, those stories are naturally gripping, they're easy to recognize, and they're easy to retell. Proactive hero stories are not. And so if we want to change from a reactive culture to a proactive one, we have to on purpose go look for those proactive heroes and tell their story. And again, not just provide the numbers, but, but provide the stories about what, what they did that really made a difference. We had great examples of this recently here in Texas when we were in the deep freeze and our, our power grid went out. There were tons of reactive heroes, right? The, the electrical linemen that went out in the heart of the storm and did all kinds of heroic things to try and get people back, back up and running so that they could have heat and water and, and lights and all that kind of stuff in their house. You heard a ton of those stories. What you didn't hear much about were the proactive hero stories. So El Paso, Texas, way out on the west side, uh, I think it was 10 years ago, we had another one of these big winter storms and they don't last long. We went from being freezing to being in shorts in the course of a week. Um, but we do have them every now and then. And, and so about 10 years ago, they went through this in El Paso and they said, you know what, let's learn a lesson. Let's take some action now so that this doesn't happen again. And they did a lot of winterizing and those sorts of things. And so they didn't have the blackout problem that we had here in Houston but you don't hear much about their stories. You hear the reactive hero stories, you don't hear the proactive hero stories as much. And so one of the things to think about um, as, you're, as you're trying to make these improvements is figure out how to tell the story. A captivating story is, uh, it can definitely help you because it makes the idea stick beyond the moment. It's something you're gonna remember the next day, whereas the numbers you might not. It connects you to other people and other ideas and it spurs you to action. 
And this isn't by chance. There's a lot of science about, about how the brain works. And there are chemicals that get released when you're listening to a good story that are sort of this intoxicating cocktail for your brain. And it helps you to remember, it helps you to connect, and it helps you to take action. So it's important to think about that with those proactive hero stories. So let me share a quick story of one of my proactive heroes. Um, this is Nikki's story. And this was many, many years ago when I first started working with defect elimination. Um, you can tell based on the, the ancient piece of uh, equipment that Nikki was using, this overhead projector here. So Mickey had gone through a workshop. He and about four other people were on a team and they were gonna work on some sort of problem out in the, in the plant. I don't even remember what it was. Um, but the first thing that Mickey did was went out to gather some data. And, and back in the day, if you wanted to share data that you had gathered, you would have to either print it or write it on transparent film. And then you'd lay it on top of one of these things. So for any of the youngsters in the group, this is an overhead projector. You have a light bulb here a mirror, it reflects through the glass, another mirror, and then it displays onto the screen. And so on this glass is where you would put your transparent film with your printed notes or handwritten notes. So Mickey had gone through a bunch of trouble to write all this stuff up, put it on the projector, turned it on, and it was so blurry, it was unreadable. So he started fiddling with this knob. You've got your focus knob here. You've got the mirror adjust here. Still blurry, unreadable. He waited about 15 minutes because again, sometimes you had to wait for the bulb to warm up enough to, to get the thing in focus, still wasn't in focus. And so that was it, he had had it at that point. He was really irritated. He kind of threw down the proverbial gauntlet and said, if they're serious about wanting us to work on these improvements, they would give us the tools that we need to do the job. So I'm changing the topic of our defect elimination project from whatever it was to getting a new overhead projector for this room that actually works. And when they turn that down, because you know they will, they're not gonna wanna spend the money, then I'm done, because they're not serious about it. So he storms out of the room, writes up a purchase order, storms into his supervisor's office, throws the PO on Steve's desk and said, there you go, and walks out. And, and used much more colorful language, but I'll keep it clean. Um, so Steve, his initial impulse was, you know, overhead projectors are expensive. We have several on the site. They can use a different room. They can go get the projector, bring it back to their room, take it back to where they got it from. Why should I spend extra money on this? Um, but based on, on Mickey's attitude, uh, Steve decided the safe answer was sign the purchase order and get the new overhead projector. So he did it. And then much to Mickey's surprise, the projector shows up, it gets set up in the room, and then Mickey and his team come back and they go back to their original project and they're able to see the, the data, they're able to come up with a solution, they implement it, and they're so excited by that that they do it again and again and again. And so over the course of the next 15 months, Mickey and his small group identified 157 defects and were able to eliminate almost half of them in that time period, saving a tremendous amount of money. It was over a million dollars worth of savings. And what was important is that they took ownership over the process. And had Steve not signed that original PO, none of this would have happened. Now, the reason that I'm sharing this story with you is sometime next week, when you've forgotten all about my eight-step defect elimination process, I guarantee you're going to remember my story about Mickey and his overhead projector, because stories fit. And you connect with them, and hopefully, they're going to drive you to take action as well. All right, so the final uh, pitfall that I want to talk about is letting the pursuit of perfection get in the way of 
progress. It's important to get started. It's unlikely you're gonna get it exactly right the first time. It is unlikely that every team is gonna be successful. You have to create a safe environment where you can experiment with the process, the teams can experiment with eliminating defects, and it's okay to fail. So keeping the project small is a great way to deal with this. Then failures can be used as a way to learn and grow as opposed to something that's gonna crush the whole process. So don't wait until you have the perfect defect elimination process designed. Get out there and start working on it. All right, so with that said, I'll open it up for questions in just a second, but I also wanted to provide my contact information. So it's on this screen. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. And so I've got my LinkedIn ID there. You can actually use the QR code. I discovered recently, you can do that straight from the app in your phone. You can scan the QR code and connect. I also have provided a link to the book that I mentioned earlier, Don't Just Fix It, Improve It. All right, so let me open it up now. Leah, turn it over to you, see if there are any questions out there. Awesome, there are a lot of questions. Audience, we will not get to all of the questions now, but I know that Michelle is going to follow up with you, so keep entering them into the questions tool. We'll answer a couple right now, starting with Michelle. What is a good strategy for making a quick judgment about the value of fixing one defect versus another, especially if the judgment can be made by the person that found it? My recommendation is to pick the one you're more interested in dealing with. And I say you, meaning the person who's, who's looking at it. Um, what's most important is the one you're going to get done. And so picking the one that, that has the $1,000 payback that you're never going to do versus the one with the $100 payback that you will do, go for the one that you're going to get done. That, that's okay. the, the one you're most excited about. All right. And you may have covered this, but let's go back to it. There's a lot of questions about inertia and making time how do we get time for this right how do we motivate so the top line question here is how do we motivate the operators to get involved in removing the defect the larger question is how do we make time for this new activity all right so let me start with motivation this is actually something that that i spoke on recently as well it's a, a pet topic of mine um and particularly with inertia which is one of the the biggest uh, negative motivators that's out there and so I would say that, you know, how do you get the operators involved? Pick the stuff they care about. So if you go to them with your pet peeve, they're not going to be interested. If you go to them and say, what drives you nuts? And how can I help you make that defect go away? They're going to be interested. When they see that, that they're going to get payback for it. That's, that's the biggest way to get past that motivation factor. Um, in terms of how do I find the time, this is where having small projects comes in because you're not talking about things that take a tremendous amount of time. And the other thing that I found to be very effective is if you can connect improvement work to repair work, that's a great opportunity. Because if you think about if I'm going to, if I'm already repairing a pump, there's some small thing I can do to improve that. If I just add it into the repair, that's a great opportunity to get it done. So you don't have all the sort of upfront and back end work that's already being done anyway. You're just adding in the, the, the improvement piece. Um, this is one that I see a lot with like bill of materials. When people say our bill of materials are terrible. And so you have the idea of let's go through every single bill of materials and fix them. Well, that's a huge project. But if you say, you know what, every Monday, I'm gonna pick one repair that I'm doing and as I close out that repair, I'm going to make sure the bill of materials is good. That doesn't take that much time. 
And so that, that to me is the way that you kind of sneak these in through the cracks. And that's how you get around that limitation of we're just too busy with reactive work or we don't have the equipment availability to do this repair work. Um, the other thing that I've seen is having stuff kind of all designed and kitted up and ready to go for the improvement. And then it just sits and waits and you attach that to the, the uh, that piece of equipment so that the next time it comes down for a repair or a PM, you just do the improvement work as well. So you've already kind of done some of the upfront work. You just do the final execution during during the repair. Got it. I think right. that that actually covered off on a lot of the different questions in here. But again, audience, Michelle will follow up with you because you've got some great insights here and she'll be excited to see those. I want to encourage everyone that is on LinkedIn and active to follow Michelle because you'll see more information coming through um, and certainly check out her book. Michelle, if you'll, if you'll forward to the next slide. There you go. Thank you. Next webinar, March 17th, we'll be kicking off a two-part series on how to get more value out of your CMMS, a pretty core tool for most teams. And the series is featuring Michael Mills from Folk Reliability. And I want to point out that while Michael will be discussing various common CMMS capabilities, his sessions are not specific to any one CMMS software. So this advice is more about usage models and stumbling blocks and updates, best practices. So I really hope that you can all join us. And then next uh, slide, if you would, please, Michelle. After I close the webinar, there will be a small pause and then a survey would appear, will appear. I really hope that you can all answer the survey questions. We will all learn from your feedback and it'll help us improve the webinar series. That's also where you can ask for a copy of the presentation and a certificate on LinkedIn. And if you do choose to get the certificate, go ahead and share that on LinkedIn and tag Michelle or myself or Fluke Reliability because we'd love to see your accomplishments. And that is it for today. The recorded webinar will be available in a day or so. So check excelx.com. Michelle, thank you so much for joining today. I really learned a lot. Oh, thank you, Lee. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share my experiences. And I really look forward to hearing about everyone's successes as well as their struggles with implementing defect elimination um, as part of the reliability effort at their site. So please uh, connect with me on LinkedIn or email. I'd, I'd love to hear about what you're doing, what's working, and, and what's not working. We can all learn exactly. from each other's uh, successes and failures. Exactly. All right, everyone, we're calling it a day for now. Take care, good luck, and we'll see you next time. Bye.